This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And I am welcoming Robert Schaefer to the program. We had some problem a couple of weeks ago with um, internet connections not being all that it could be, so we've had to... Uh, postpone that and bring Robert Schaefer on now. And that's why those of you who've been listening to the program thought Robert Schaefer was coming up in the next week and he didn't. Uh, we had to iron out. Yeah, we had problems out. with the internet, but uh, it's been repaired, I think. Yeah, so we, we've got a good picture of you going there. Uh, those <laughs> of you who don't know, Robert Schaefer is a writer with a lifelong interest in astronomy and in the question of life on other planets. As are we all? He is one of the leading skeptical investigators of UFOs, a fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, cleverly known as CSI, and I think they changed their name just so if you type in CSI into Google, you, they might come up, as, as opposed to crime scene investigations. Right. He has written um, the Psychic Vibration column in the Skeptical Inquirer for over 35 years. He's a founding director and past chairman of the Bay Area Skeptics. He has written books on a variety of paranormal topics and has appeared on many television and radio shows over the years. His book, Bad UFOs, is what is of interest to us today. We'll be talking about that. We're going to be talking about uh, the Travis Walton case. We're going to be talking about uh, a couple of things like that that uh, we've kind of set this up in advance. Robert Schaefer, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thanks, Kevin. Glad to be here. <laughs> and we're glad to have you here, uh, mm -hmm. for that matter. Um, let's just jump right into it. And I think one of the things that has been going on for the last couple of um, weeks is that the internet, everybody has been talking about the Travis Walton case. I mean, Mike Rogers has come out and said some things. Uh, he's been on the, he was on the program um, uh, for a couple of weeks talking about Walton and his experiences with it. Uh, he said some things that he's been repudiated, uh, throwing the case into a kind of cocked hat. Uh, one of the things that was brought up and it's been brought up a number of times and I know you've addressed this before, is this idea that Philip Plass, the great UFO skeptic debunker, had offered Pierce some $10,000 if he would admit to the hoax aspect of it. And I know you've been through Philip's archives and had collected papers, and you have a different take on whether this story is true. What is your take on that, on that particular story? Well, it's, uh, first of all, the claim of class allegedly trying to bribe Steve Pierce, uh, it didn't come from Pierce himself. Mike Rogers was the first one to make that claim. Claim was made in the book back in, was it 1978, or The Ultimate Encounter, was it Bill Barry or somebody like that? The very first book, I think, written on the uh, Travis Walton uh, case. And uh, Class, when he read that, he was very surprised because he said, you know, I had never had any contact with this guy Pierce as of that time, and supposedly he's already tried to bribe him. And uh, so uh, Class called 
fierce and they talked. And uh, classic course always recorded everything. Uh, sometimes it might have been legal, sometimes perhaps not. But he recorded pretty much everything having to do with either his work or his ufology, which was his other work. And uh, in the archives, he's got this transcript of the uh, uh, of the talk from 1978, I think it was. And uh, both of them are kind of expressing surprise about this. He's never it's clear, you know, from what they say, it's uh, they hadn't spoken before. I have this on my bad UFOs. I have a, an entry about this. Um, just go to the, there's a search box on bad UFOs up in the corner and just put in his name, Steve Pierce um, or archives or bribe or something like that. And, and you'll find it. And uh, I've actually got the, the transcript there linked in. So you, you can read it yourself. Now, well, let me I, ask you, let me, let me ask you a question is, is, you have the transcript, but do the tapes exist? That's a good question, and I'm not sure. Um, I know I asked them for the tape, if possible. Um, they didn't find one. Um, I, I, I'm really not sure if it's possibly in there or not. Somebody else I know was trying to get some uh, materials from the class archive, uh, and they told him that the archive is... Uh, but American Philosophical Society archive is closed for the next um, year or something like that. I'm not sure if it's because of COVID or because they're working on something or whatever, but basically you can't get anything out of them right now, but in, in a year or so you should be able to. So but, no, there, there's no reason to think that to doubt this, um, this transcript because class wrote out a transcript of all the important conversations, not everyone, but the ones he considered important. He wrote out a transcript, and um, this remember this was done back in 1978. So whatever the current you know claims might be, uh, he you know he wouldn't if he wanted to fake something, he wouldn't have known what to fake. I don't think back then. Well, the reason the reason I asked about the tapes is I've gotten into a couple of conflicts with witnesses about what they'd said on tape and that I had misquoted them. And one of the big ones was Jay Bond Johnson. He was the photographer in the Roswell case, the one that had gone to Ramey's office and photographed Marcel and Ramey and DeBose, yeah. the weather balloon to bloom. And Johnson repeatedly said I'd misquoted him. And so when I produced the tapes with the quotes on it, he said I'd edited the tapes and I finally had to send him the whole, the whole tapes. My point is it doesn't matter how carefully I think when, when I'm, what I'm getting at is Johnson found a, a mistake I had made. I'd left out an and in one of the quotes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. um, so I had misquoted him because I left that and out. But I mean, the point simply is, um, once again, the transcript is kind of secondhand information. And if the tapes exist, then there's really no argument with the tapes. And so I was, right. I was wondering if that, because, because what has happened is I was talking to some people over the weekend about this, and they had said that the, um, that, class had originally made the claim in a Western Union telegram to Pierce. And I, I, I knew of no instance where class had used Western Union to communicate with people, but I right, wanted to make reaction. No, he was, uh, he was very big on those long distance phone calls back then when you had to pay a dollar a minute or whatever it was for the long distance calls. And he made all kinds of them uh, out to, uh, Snowflake, Arizona, and uh, environs, 
uh, as well as through Socorro and other places where there were cases to be investigated. Um, yeah, I think what's clear from the transcript is that, you know, th they hadn't spoken before, they hadn't communicated before. And, and so that's the, the important point. This story was just made up. Now, later on, like 2013 or something like that, uh, Steve Pierce was on board with Travis and he was at the uh, UFO Congress and, uh, th and it was, oh yes, Travis, everything you say is true. Although if you look, I should have that up. I should have uh, thought to bring that up um, so I could read a little bit of it. The, um, he, he says, you know, Travis is a, is a big liar. And Mike Rogers is saying that too now, which is really interesting because I mean, on the one hand, you know, he says the incident is true, but Travis is a big liar and I don't believe anything he says. So, you know, that, that is problematic for the case, that's for sure. Well, I know with uh, Ryan Gordon, at one point, I think Mike Rogers had said it was a hoax. Right. The abduction part of it was a hoax. He always separated the events. From no, well, well he did. He did later, but no. Originally, he 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 suggested that the whole thing was a hoax. That everything was a hoax. Well, uh, but then later he said some things that were inconsistent with that. So you've got to really say that Mike Rogers has not been consistent in terms of what he has been saying about this case. And that even in recent, especially in recent years, in recent months. Well, what I was going to say was that um, Ryan Gordon sent me a copy of the text that uh, uh, Rogers had sent him repudiating the repudiation. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah he, they, he repudiated it afterward. The first thing he said was uh, Gordon has um, manipulated tapes and has... Uh, you know, made, made it look like I said something that I didn't say. And uh, then he pointed, Gordon pointed out that, that you know, to, you're accusing me of a felony of, of, you know, misrepresenting apparently would be a felony or so, he says, uh, to take a tape of someone and um, alter it and then play it in public and claim that it's authentic. Uh, and so then um, Roger said, well, no, I'm not accusing you of uh, manipulating it anymore but I repudiate what I said. So, like I said, he has not been consistent on this matter, but he has, you know, uh, believe me, it's far from a ringing endorsement of Travis, you know, and he's saying things like, well, you know, I wouldn't believe anything Travis says. Well, I, that's the thing I was getting at. And I talked to Steve Pierce in Roswell, and it may have been in 2013, but 2012, somewhere in that time frame, a number of years ago, and I put some stuff up on my blog about that, which would be at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, which I say for people who might want to search that out, just type in Steve Pierce. But um, at that point, he was on board with the story of the $10,000 bribe. But what wasn't clear to me was whether Philip Class was talking about the $10,000 bet with him and Pierce misunderstood what he was saying or something like that. I, it was kind of unclear. I, yeah, I kind of don't think it's that. I think that, the, that when Mike Rogers originally made up the story back in 1978 or whatever about the so-called bribe of Pierce, $10,000, he was perhaps conflating the idea with classes, $10,000 prize for proof of uh, alien life, for proof that UFOs are you know, alien spacecraft. Uh, and, you know, kind of people had in their minds the uh, associating class with $10,000 uh, 
and so then this this was brought into that fold. No, I think in 2013, uh, 2012, 13, in that period, or the same period we're talking about when uh, when he appeared with Travis at the UFO Congress and basically agreed with everything Travis said. And uh, I I think it was really was. Um, it's kind of like, here's a bandwagon that I need to get on it. The one theme I keep hearing about these guys, about um, certainly about uh, Travis and certainly about Mike Rogers and probably about Pierce and some of these others is they're kind of, they need money and they're looking for ways to monetize this. And uh, I mean, let's face it, if Travis were to admit that, um, if you know that this was a hoax then you know basically that would interrupt the stream of income because you know I'll, he couldn't go to these uh, uh conferences anymore and sell books and sell whatever else i mean, maybe he couldn't say you know like i'm the great imposter or something i don't know but i don't think there would be much money from that and uh and of course mike rogers what he's saying now is that he is he says that, that travis owes him a lot of money because of uh agreements that they had signed but uh, Travis is supposed to share sort of share them the revenues with him because of a the use of his illustrations in the books and in the lectures and so on and also because of uh, I guess just his help in the story or his participation in the story so but he says Travis hasn't paid him anything in a very long time and so he wants to get a lawyer and sue Travis but of course you, you can't squeeze blood from a turnip and if Travis is pretty well broke and Mike is pretty well broke and he can't pay a lawyer and Travis can't, you know, couldn't, even if you sued him, what would you, what would you get? So it's, um, uh, but I mean, just the fact that this is happening, uh, I should have maybe gathered some of these quotes that he had, uh, Mike had made. I could read them to you without, um, you know, any possibility of, uh, let's, let's, let's retreat to one point. Is there any evidence in the archives that Philip Glass ever sent telegrams to witnesses or people or anything like that? I don't think so. I used to, Class used to share um, most of his important correspondence uh, with me and Jim Oberg and a few others that, you know, he'd, he'd send us, oh, look at this, look what I found, look what I, you know, I'm challenging so-and-so. I'm challenging Stanton Friedman to back up what he says, you know, we would get letters and things like that all the time, but I never saw anything that would suggest that he would use Western Union to reach somebody. Well, the reason I asked that is we have the, well, they have the claim out there, and I don't know where you go to look to validate it from the Western Union point of view. So, I, and I don't know if Philip Class would have had a copy of the telegram in his in his records. So you have to rely on. Well, you would think he would. I mean, when you start, don't you get a, if you send a telegram, don't you get a copy of it yourself? Um, I would I think know. so, but I don't yeah. know. I've never. Seen I don't telegram. know either, frankly. Uh, so that was what I was. You know, that was that was the claim that he, there was really nothing in writing. There were no letters that were exchanged that mentioned this sort of thing. It was uh, done with this telegraph and some telephone calls. And so uh, that was why I kind of pursued this a little bit because that just didn't seem right to me. The class would be using Western Union. Right. Right, I agree. So, um, and the transcripts suggest that Pierce and class had not spoken prior to this, the first I time. I had not communicated after this, in any after way. This book came out. Right. Right. The class was surprised to read that in the book, and then he immediately 
Um, I'm not sure where he got the phone number or what, but he did contact uh, Steve Pearson, you know. And Steve did not, as I say, he was uh, he, he was kind of like didn't believe Travis at that time. But you know, when there's a bandwagon, sometimes people find it in their advantage to get on. I think you know Mike Rogers. I think he, he's very upset with Travis, and he thinks Travis lies about a lot of things. But he's not willing to say that the whole thing is a hoax because he's also invested in this thing, and he hopes to get at least you know something from the use of his uh, illustrations and uh, from his other contributions to the story. Well, his illustrations are very good. Yes, they are really fine very fine. Yes, in fact, he's uh, he's selling prints and whatever on his uh, Facebook uh, page to, you know, you want a picture of Travis uh, being zapped, you know, he's, he's got those. I mean, a painting, you know. Well, I just find the whole thing very distressing simply because here's a case that was one of the, I guess, the classics now of ufology and it seems oh, to be unraveling because the participants are coming unglued and that's... Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, that's sort of where we are on this on this right. thing. Right. Uh, let me do this. I'm going to have to take a break here. Uh, I'm with uh, Robert Schaefer. I want to say James Holbert for some reason. Yeah. I'm here with I'm here with Robert Schaefer. Uh, he's his uh, website is www.badufos.com, and it uh, he's got some stuff up there about the Walton Exchange and the. Uh, Mike Rogers had to say in this sort of thing. So yeah, all that stuff is on the blog that we're talking about. So you can take a good look at it. And as I say, there's stuff on my blog as well with uh, interviews with Mike Rogers that I've had in the last couple of weeks and that sort of thing. So you can take a look at that. Uh, we'll be back right after this. You are listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. And we will be back right after this. So please stick around. with Robert Schaefer. We're talking at the moment about the Travis Walton case. We'll be getting into some other things a little bit later on, but we're kind of looking at the way the case is unraveled. This is a case that goes back decades, literally decades, and it seemed like there was a solid wall of the um, participants. And now we're seeing that it's maybe not quite that solid. Uh, Stephen Pierce is no longer on board with the thing. Uh, he's tired of it. Mike Rogers is telling us different things. Uh, Travis Walton, who agreed to be on this program, has not answered any of my emails about coming on to talk about this thing. So we're getting it from a lot of other people. Now, I've talked to several people in the last um, several days about this, and that was what generated the question about the um, Western Union and wondering a way of verifying whether or not something like that had actually happened. It sounds like it didn't. It sounds like this whole thing is kind of, uh, as I said, coming apart uh, with various components of it. There is still one or two people who are solidly in the camp. Mike Rogers says repeatedly, and this strikes me as a red flag, that nobody saw Walton abducted. And right. although that's something that's gone on from the very, very beginning, it's something that Rogers seems to be pushing now 
much more so than he did in the past. In and fact, of I, course, that's true because they took off in the truck, and when they got back, Travis Walton was gone. Yeah, I, in fact, I think he said he didn't even see Travis getting hit with the beam, but he saw him flying through the air. Yes. <laughs> okay, that's good. There's my friend flying through the air. I don't know why, but he's flying through the air. Um, let me explain just a little bit um, why this is happening out. It's because of Brian Gordon, who is a, you know, a producer of uh, media and so on. And um, he went to, uh, you know, to that area, to, to Snowflake or whatever, and he met with Travis and he met with um, Mike Rogers and whoever else. Um, he, being right on site, he, he did some very important, shall we say, deconfusion about the geography. I wasn't, you know, I mean, I'd heard general terms about Turkey Springs is where they were working and Heber is up there or something. But I didn't know where all these different places are. What actually happened was this, that they normally, when they would go home after a day of work, and they would, they would usually quit about four o'clock before it was dark, although it was starting to get dark because this is, you know, November. And um, they would go more or less due north down this kind of a rough um forest road but it's not such a bad road and um so and then they would get up to heber in whatever time 40 minutes or something like that but for whatever reason on this day on the abduction day they went a different way they traveled to the west along the rim road which i believe is a paved road um and it meets up with then another paved road, which is, I don't know, Highway 60 or something, and that takes you into Hebrew. In terms of time, it's about the same either way. It's longer to go this way, um, but the roads are better, so you can go faster. But the point is, if you take that route, you must pass by the Gentry Tower. And, uh, and I have some pictures on my blog of the uh, tower, and uh, basically, um, the, the suggestion is that it's, you know, class thought that basically all seven of these guys had um, got together to hoax this thing. And, and actually it was Carl Flock who first suggested, to my knowledge, it didn't work that way. It was the two guys, two hoaxing five. In other words, Travis and Mike hoaxing the other five guys. The other five guys didn't really know what was going on. And so as they went up there and you'd see this, if the, Tower was the lights inside the tower being illuminated from a distance with the trees below hiding, you know, the, the support structure. They say, look, look at that object out there. That was the UFO. And you have to do this quickly because, you know, if they have too much time, they're going to figure it out. Um, but he zoomed away after Travis ran out. Now, that, then it came back, but it wasn't to the same spot. They came back to look for Travis, but they didn't come to the, to the tower area. They came to some other area because, you know, it's part of the hoax. You take them to somewhere, you know, nearby, but not the right place. Where's Travis? Well, he's not here. So now when they go, when they take, and, and they've taken, I don't know how many people to the spot subsequently where Travis supposedly was abducted, the supposed location of, the abduction was very close to Turkey Springs itself. It's like, I think it's supposed to be only like a quarter mile or something south of where they had been working. 
But that's inconsistent with a whole lot of things, uh, not the least of which all these different accounts of how they drove for 15 minutes or so before they saw the object. And they talk about, um, we, they, they, um, they have these water channels that are cut into the road in order to allow it to, to water to drain off without washing out the road. And each time the truck would hit one of these, it would bump and they call them thank you ma'ams. And so they're talking about, uh, you know, they're hitting the thank you ma'ams and all of a sudden, what's that object? Well, the thank you ma'ams are along the rim road, not this other road that they supposedly took. And if they're on the rim road, you, you're going to pass the gentry tower. There's no way around it. You can't get out of the forest without passing the tower. So that, uh, but then, um, you know, they're trying to claim, well, no, no, we were nowhere near the, we were five miles away from the gentry tower. Well, not really. I mean, maybe some other time they were, but this time they went right by it. Well, it sounds like we're kind of dragging down into some very deep minutiae here. That's not minutiae, the on? location of it. Because uh, if, if, as uh, our theory is that, and uh, there seems to be some uh, good gossip to support it, that uh, Travis spent five days up in the tower, that, that apparently the guy who was working there was, was a friend of his brother, and uh, so, you know, it was a place for Travis to hide out for five days and then come back and say, you know, the aliens got him. So it's not minutia because it's very important about where they went. For no, the, I understand the next that. Day, I understand what I'm saying, what I'm saying is you know, people listening here, they don't understand that there's the two roads are close together. And if you're on one road, you may not be able to see the tower. And here's the tower and all this. Yeah, but, but the real question yeah. is, we're... Travis Walton and Mike Rogers and probably Walton's brother Dwayne were they sophisticated enough to come up with this tale? Apparently so. <laughs> no, I, I, I this, and I mentioned that to Ryan Gordon a few times. It's sort of like, gee, is this like some hillbilly hoax or something? But it, it was it was good because you see, if you bring people back to the right spot and they're gonna see the tower and they say, what the hell is this tower and who's up there and let's go talk to them and whatever. So whereas when they take, when they bring people there, they bring people to, when, when the next day, when they supposedly, when the search party went out to look for Travis, they said they searched a two and a half mile radius, but he took them a spot five miles from the tower. So they didn't see Travis, they didn't see the tower. So, I mean, that's basically explains what's happened. And that's the information that we didn't have until Ryan Gordon actually went to the spot and started talking to them and started, you know, looking and getting photos, he even took some drone photos of the whole area and the tower and so on. Well, I guess the, the, the problem is, it just seems to me that this is a fairly elaborate hoax to pull on it. And were they just pulling it on their pals for some reason, or did they envision the snowball effect where well uh, Ryan said that Ryan said that he that they thought they would get the National Enquirer prize at that time there was a I think it was a ten thousand dollar prize for the best case of the year but a hundred thousand dollar prize for a case that would provide definite proof of aliens they thought they were going to get the hundred thousand dollars which obviously they didn't, although they did get the best case of the year award from the National Enquirer. Uh, and then later the National Enquirer upped their ultimate prize to a million dollars, but of course nobody has won that because nobody has yet got this definite proof. But um, so that reportedly was the motive or at least well, what, the main motive. 
when you look at a UFO case, you come into it from a skeptical point of view that, or do you come, I mean, clearly you, you believe there, or don't believe there's any uh, alien visitation. No, does, not here. Does that, does that influence your investigative aspect of it? You know that there must be some kind of mundane terrestrial explanation for a case? Well, yes. I mean, you, you go in there and you think that they're claiming aliens and nobody has ever yet proven anything about aliens. So therefore, let's look at this, see if there's any likely terrestrial explanation or explanation involving a hoax or simply a mistaken identification of something. Uh, there are a lot of people out there trying to pull off hoaxes. In fact, while we're on the subject of hoaxes, um, there was this fellow named Kelly Waldrip who was a childhood friend of Travis Walton. Uh, they since went uh, their own ways. He has been saying, Waldrip has been saying that when Travis, when he and Travis were kids in uh, like in middle school, they were always talking about they were going to pull off a UFO hoax. They were going to convince people that, you know, UFOs were coming to, uh, you know, uh, Arizona to the forest there. And uh, when Travis was asked about this on uh, a recent show, he didn't deny knowing him. He didn't deny that they had talked about hoaxes, but basically said, it's the other guy's fault that we were talking about. <laughs> it wasn't my idea to do the hoax. It was his idea. But then we talked about it a lot. So, Well, it, it just strikes, strikes me that sometimes, and I'm not referring to you specifically, but sometimes the skeptical side of the uh, question is... Um, I, I guess a little bit more biased than I would expect a skeptic to be. I, I, and I, I promised you I wouldn't mention Level Land, but I'm going to bring it up here in the context of a philosophical question. We can agree something happened at Level Land, whether it was mundane or extraterrestrial, doesn't matter here. But the Air Force came up with an explanation of, of ball lightning to explain Level Land. Shouldn't the skeptic also question that explanation? Yes, I, I think that um, the case uh, for ball lightning is not a very strong one. Um, it, in many cases, it uh, could be simply an afterimage, a very bright lightning strike occurs nearby. is going to cause a, a, a create a spot on your retina that's going to look blue for a minute or something like that. I don't doubt that a lot of them are like this. Um, you know, if people are citing things, uh, it could be a lot of things, but I. No, my I'm question. Gonna... My question simply is that it seems to me, from my my biased point of view, that um, when an explanation is offered that is less than credible, it seems that many people in the skeptical community, I would think they would want to be skeptical of an explanation as well as the belief it's extraterrestrial. The Air Force offers this explanation. Well, let's see if that makes sense in the context of what has been reported. And it doesn't seem that we get that kind of skepticism about oh, those explanations. Well, yeah, a lot of the Blue Book uh, explanations and research was really kind of uh, cursory. They didn't really go uh, into it uh, that uh, deeply, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, there have been skeptics who have been claiming all kinds of things. There was one guy who claimed that the um, Socorro case was a mirage of uh, the star Canopus, that some miracle 
incredible phenomenon occurs to make the stark canopus, which normally is like all stars is only seen at night, not in the daytime. But somehow this was, you know, some incredible, and they printed that thing in the Skeptical Inquirer some years back. And I said I thought it was crap. And in fact, there have been several other things like this. In fact, recently there was a fellow who was going to explain, you know, the, um, um, the Salem, Massachusetts, the Coast Guard UFO photos where you have these three lights, I think, or four lights that look like in a sort of a formation. And, Let me interrupt uh, you there. We'll come back to that. I've got to take a break here because we'll, we'll explore that in just a moment. I'm here with Robert Schaefer and his uh, website is www.badufos.com. His book is also called Bad UFOs for those who are interested in it. My uh, website, my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and there'll be information up, uh, there about our discussion here. There's the information about the Walton case, what Mike Rogers has said and where those things are going been going. So uh, head over the, there, take a look at that, and you can gather more information about the case. I will be back with uh, Robert Schaefer in just a moment, so please stick around. Schaefer. We are practicing social distancing, as you can see by the backgrounds. We are not together in the same room. We're not together in the same state. And uh, some of this isn't even in the same country. So we're way spread out so we can do this best. I do want to take just a moment to mention my latest books, UFOs in the Deep State, only because the Deep State has been talked about a lot in the news media recently. And I think... Um, some of the things in the book, when we're not dealing specifically with the UFO cases, but we're dealing with the um, uh, transition from government, elected government to bureaucratic government over the years, you can see how the deep state kind of influences the way things go. So uh, you might want to take a look at um, UFOs in the deep state for, if nothing else, the history of the deep state as it kind of evolved in the world. When we went away, Robert, you were mentioning the Salem uh, photographs taken in 1952, July of 1952, and there's four lights supposedly outside um, this Coast Guard facility, and it, the pictures have been published uh, all over the place. I'll try to have a copy of the picture up on my blog for those of you who'd like to see it and not familiar with it, but you were going to say about, before I went away, you were saying that some skeptical explanation for those pictures had just been offered? Right. Well, somebody, uh, of course, most skeptics think that these are just these are reflections of lights in the windows, which they certainly appear to be. But uh, in uh, there was one fellow who absolutely insisted that he'd found chasing the sun angle and whatever, that these were reflections of the sun from the tops of their oil tanks or something nearby that were then reflecting up on the clouds and making these nice, you know, round circles and so on. And uh, well, I, try, I tried to replicate that basically using the top of a paint can, which is flat. I don't know if the tops of those other tanks are flat or not, but it's better for it to be flat and then to try to see if I could get a projection up on the eaves of, of my house, you know, from the direct sun on top of the paint can. And of course, 
it, you, it, it reflects a little, but you, you get this diffuse glow. You don't get this nice, clear image. So, uh, I mean, you know, people will offer all kinds of strange, skeptical explanations sometimes, but, you know, a lot of them don't, don't work out. Well, I would think that if you, if you were getting some kind of a reflection from sunlight off tanks into the windows, it would be kind of a daily phenomenon. No, yeah, well, you would think so. No, it's not. It's worse than that. It's not supposed to be on the windows. It's supposed to be on the clouds that were up there. That supposedly the sun, you know, that the that these tanks were showing them. And 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 he agreed that well, this would be an unusual thing. It had to be unusually bright over here and unusually dark over here. Uh, I think it's just too unusually everything. So uh, yeah, there we're, we skeptics are skeptical of a skeptical explanation, purported skeptical explanations, if they don't make a lot of sense. Well, I think uh, one of the problems, I, in, to point a finger at Donald Menzel, I noticed that if his skeptical explanation broke apart, he would retreat to another one. And eventually, if he had no explanation, he would say it was a hoax. And I think specifically of the Lubbock Lights uh, case from 1951, the, the um, chevron-shaped formation right. of, of lights. Uh, originally, he came up with an idea that it was a reflection of the mercury vapor lights that had just been installed in Lubbock off the clouds or something like that, which yeah. doesn't explain the motion. And eventually, he gave up on, on that. It was a temperature inversion. And finally, he said, well, it's a hoax. Well, I think that a number of the sightings probably were explainable in the mundane and they don't fit into the photographs of Carl Hart Jr. Talk. Right. Uh, the, no, I, I think what we said about the, the photograph of this guy Hart, that was a hoax. It's pretty clear. And in fact, somebody showed that if you, that the, of the two photos that, you know, if you wrote, if you take the one that's like this and then you wrote, and then the other one's like that, but if you unrotate them, it's the same photo. It's the same thing. These didn't, you know, if they were up there flying around in formation, they were just, you know, absolutely the same formation from here to here without changing in the least. Uh, and were, I, I, I'm trying to remember if I got that on the blog. Um, but, I, you know, if you, if you go looking for what was the guy's name, Carl Hart um, Jr. Uh, UFO photo, uh, you know, um, it should... The other one was uh, the visual sightings, I think, are very likely are these birds, clovers or something, or migratory birds. Some of them, they some fly of them, in formation, yeah. Some of them. Yeah. I myself have seen that when I was, you know, in school and I was a kid and I saw, you know, like, um, I, was, I think it was like at the end of August that I was, I was standing outside with a friend who were talking and I look up and I see what looks like, you know, a formation of things and they go like this down toward the end of the street where there was a store. And uh, then they just, I didn't see him after that. I thought, wow, maybe we saw flying saucers. But then later I saw very similar things to that. And I saw them under a little better conditions and I could see that they were birds in formation that looked like that. Well, I will say one thing. I talked to Carl Hart Jr. I may have been the last person to interview him in the context of the UFO sighting. I was in Lubbock, Texas. And on a lark, I looked up his phone number. Just looked to see if he was in the telephone book. For those yeah. of you who don't understand, it used to be that the phone companies produced telephone books. <laughs> you didn't have to look the stuff up online. And his name was there, so I called him. And the thing that I've noticed is when teenagers have faked UFO photographs, they eventually come clean. 
And I don't know how many famous photographs have been thoroughly destroyed by the person who took them saying, yeah, we, yeah. we fake the Lucci, The Lucci photos have been uh, confessed. Yes. But, but what I'm saying is, when I talked to Carl Hart Jr., I said, what did you photograph? Giving him the opportunity. And he said, yeah. I don't, still yeah. don't know what I photographed. So I, I, and here's a guy who's now in his 60s when I talked to him, having an opportunity to come clean and you know, clear up this whole mess. And uh, that was his response. So I, I put a lot of stock into what he said. No, I'm not convinced that the photographs are a hoax. Uh, so I guess we disagree on that point. Right, well, I have to look up the source I'm referring to and I'll send it to you later. But I think, I, well, I think that, uh, you know, that's the other thing I think with the, but oftentimes, oftentimes with the skeptical community, it's hard to get a um, good discussion going. And I think I, you know, we're kind of having that here, but I know when you talk to Philip Class, um, not in the UFO environment, uh, much more charming man, and, and you can have a, a, a solid discussion as opposed to UFO debunker type thing. So I you know, wanted to point that out. But I think the, uh, the Lubbock Lights, I think you're right that Plover do um, explain some of the some of the sightings. I don't know what the professors saw the first night when they saw the things go over. Ed Ruppelt said it was fireflies in his notes to his book, and he said if he published the explanation, then it would lead to the man who came up with the explanation for it, and then the guy didn't want to be involved in UFO stuff. I think that's a ridiculous explanation, and I don't know why he would have bought that at all. I know the professors at one point then decided that um, one of them was very mad at heart to kind of usurping their thunder. <laughs> um, and I also know that there were no migratory birds that flew in um, V-shaped formations in the Lubbock area at that time of the year. Because I, I talked to the people at the um, Department of Natural Resources or whatever they call that department in uh, in Texas at the at um, Texas Tech University to find out if th that explanation works. So I did some good research into it. I am convinced you're right that uh, birds explain some of it. The Air Force explanation on some of it is correct, but I don't. But I don't buy the explanation of hoax for the uh, for the photographs. You're, you're stuck with the photographs. They're either a hoax or they're legitimate something. Well, I I'll have to look this up because I I don't carry in my mind the precise uh, location of where this is, but I'll look at, I'll get it back to you. And then you'll see there's a very good argument for saying that. The, and I'll, I'll link that on, on my blog as well. We had another area we were gonna discuss as well. I don't remember exactly what- uh, I think it had to do with this uh, Pentagon UFO business and all that. The report that was a really a big nothing burger that came oh, out at oh. the end of June. Yes. And uh, everybody was expecting, oh, they, they're going to, disclosure, we're going to have aliens, we're going to have this, we're going to have that. Basically, all they said was, well, pilots are seeing things, we don't know what they are, so give us money, and we'll find out. <laughs> and that's basically what they said. <laughs> I've always, I've termed it as Twining 2.0. As <laughs> you remember, the Twining memo came out in 47, where he said, well, you know, the phenomenon is something real, it's not illusionary or fictitious. We don't know what it is. We're going to set up an investigation and we're going to look into it. Right. And, here's, and that's basically what we have here. The same thing in the Twining document, they had taken a number of UFO cases. I'm going to say mysterious UFO cases that they could not explain and decided that, well, here's what we're going to do. And now we're 
70 years later right. and they're saying, well, here's some cases we can't explain. So we're going to set up an investigation and start. I mean, right. We've gotten nowhere in 70 years. We haven't come up with any solutions. Right. They um, didn't, they didn't, the current, the recent report didn't even really talk about any case studies, uh, except in a very kind of a cursory way. It didn't say, okay, here's case A, case B, case C that we investigated and here's what we think. They didn't even do that, you know. And if they say, well, we think it's, you know, we can't explain it, it's unexplained. Um, as Marty Kottmeyer had a really good comment, he said, as his math teacher used to always say, show your work. If you think this is unexplained, okay, fine, show your work, show exactly what you got, how you analyzed it, why you concluded that it was unexplained, because the other explanations have been found. As you know, uh, Mick West of Metabonk has been doing a lot of uh, investigations on uh, these, uh, the three infrared UFO videos and the blurry um, Pentagon and uh, military UFOs, the recent ones. And um, the, 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 the two, the, the gimbal and the Tic Tac seem to be, um, they're distant jets, basically. This is what a distant jet looks like in the infrared. And for example, they talk about the go fast well, the go fast isn't going fast because it's just a parallax effect. It, whatever it is, if, uh, it's either a, a large bird or a balloon. Whatever it is, it's moving rather slowly, but the plane is moving past it at 400 miles an hour or whatever. So, of course, when you have this, you know, and you get you go past it like this, it's going to look like it's going that way, but that's just the perspective. And I'm saying if this is indicative of the kind of investigations that are so-called Pentagon UAP team is doing. If they thought the thing was going fast, then these guys don't know the first things about optics or or perspectives or photography or anything. So show your work. We haven't seen any of their work. Well, I know that there was a on YouTube there was a video where a guy hooked up his um, I think his cell phone camera to a night vision device and. Uh, uh, created a uh, pyramid-shaped object like they were talking about in some right. because it was based on the optics uh, of, of those two devices working together. So it wasn't something they were seeing. It was something that was created, I guess, internally in the camera's works. Right. And yet this one also stumped the Pentagon UAP team. They thought, wow, these are triangular-shaped objects and they're, they're hovering all over the ship. No. It's, it, somebody did a, a, an analysis of this and found that you can match up the, the images on that video with, you got the planet Jupiter, you got the stars of Scorpius and Aquila, and you got an airplane coming along flashing light. And of course, they're all triangle shaped because it's, it's, a, it's a term, uh, they call it bokeh, which I guess comes from the Japanese it's, it refers to how an optical system represents out-of-focus objects. And in this case, because it apparently had a triangular diaphragm in front of the lens, that uh, this caused all the out-of-focus objects to, to appear triangular shaped. The same thing with your camera. You could take your camera, assuming you have one with a manual focus, and you know, look, at, look at a bright light, and uh, it'll be a nice, you know, focus down nicely, but then you out-of-focus it, you're going to, it's going to get larger, and if there's any, you know, if it's off the optical axis, you're going to start to see, you know, um, trails and things like that, and the images and effects. So it's if this is the, if this is the kind of 
of analysis we're getting from this UAP team, then that team doesn't know beans about optics or anything else. Well, let me just tell you a brief story about show your work. When I was taking astronomy at the University of Iowa, we had a test every Friday. One of the questions on it was about the transit time or the time a moon of Jupiter would remain in eclipse. Uh, and you had to calculate how long it would remain in eclipse. Well, I remembered reading in the book uh, a caption on one of the pictures that said this uh, moon of Venus, I'm sorry, Jupiter took uh, 16 and two thirds minutes to move through its eclipse period. So I just wrote down 16 and two thirds minutes because I had no other clue what to do. I, turned out I, was, I was right. And it said, and they came back and said, show your work. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm supposed to do table the book to the test. I got full credit for it because I had the right answer. You just didn't know how I got it. It was just well, something. You got it from the book. Well, I guess I, he wanted you to draw some diagram and then figure out how fast the, the, the thing was uh, yeah, uh, precisely, and so on. But yeah. Well, the yeah, other exactly. thing, the, the other thing that strikes me about the uh, Pentagon, like you, like you said, the Twining report was based on I think sixteen sightings, and there were thirty-two different witnesses involved. So there was, you could say, there were thirty-two reports. And in the, in the the latest UAP study, there were hundred and forty-four reports. And so, well, how many instances were there? How many cases were there? Or was it just multiple witnesses on these uh, uh, on the same sighting so that you don't have 144 separate instances or incidents you have uh, a smaller number of that i'm going to have to take a break here because i'm going to be running long uh, we will be back right after this with robert Schaefer talking about ufos so please stick around We are back. I am with Robert Schaefer. We've been talking UFOs and skepticism and things like that. One of the things we wanted to talk about before we ended the program here was the uh, theory, the idea, the proposal that a alien object would pass through the solar system. And I guess everybody agrees there was an alien artifact that passed through the solar system, something that came from outside the solar system. The question is whether it was artificial or was it just some natural occurring object that uh, traveled through space and passed through the uh, solar system. You're familiar with that, of course, Robert? Yes, and uh, I have a very recent uh, blog uh, posting about the Oumuamua, uh, basically giving the argument why it is not a uh, any artificial anything. I wouldn't call it an artifact, it was an object. It really appears to be an asteroid um, but an extraterrestrial, uh, or not, I'm sorry, an extrasolar asteroid, an interstellar interloper. Well, I think that's and, what everybody agrees with. It's something that came from outside the solar system. Right. The way you can tell that is from its orbit. Um, yes. Orbits are uh, of planets and asteroids and comets and everything else are ellipses. Even the, you know, the planet's orbits are more or less circular. 
something like Halley's Comet has got a very long, you know, elliptical orbit like this, but they're all ellipses. Well, when you plot out the orbit, because you can measure the position of the thing once it's in the solar system, and if you and if you plot it out and you don't get an ellipse, you get a parabola, meaning it's open at the end then you, something has come in from outside and has swung around the sun, got, it gets accelerated, gets pulled toward the sun, but then goes around with that same velocity and then loses it on the way out and it exits the solar system at pretty much the same speed as it came in, except it's going to be in a different direction. Um, well, one very interesting thing that uh, was pointed out, uh, and I have a citation of there's, there's, a, there's a, an astronomer, Dr. Katz, I don't remember his first name. Uh, it's on the blog, but um, he points out that the thing was only, Oumuamua was only traveling at 26 kilometers per second as it approached our solar system. In other words, it had been traveling from somewhere at only 26 kilometers per second with respect to our sun and our solar system, which is approximately the same speed as the earth and its orbit, it's approximately the same. Um, so, but what that means is it has spent hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years out there. Uh, now it appeared to have come from the, the direction of the constellation Lyra, just because you know that's a, basically describes a, a direction in space. That's where the thing came in from, swung around the sun, and then ended up going out the other side. But uh, we don't, let's assume for a moment that it was an alien probe of some kind. Well, where was it launched from? Well, some star, but there isn't any really close star. The closest star in that direction might be Vega, which is 20 light years, I believe, away, uh, or 30, something like that. It's not I terribly think it's far. About 25, about 25, I believe. Okay, 25 light years. And the point is, if it had come from 25 light years away, it would have been traveling something like 10 million years to reach us. Now, let's imagine that, I, that we're an alien civilization or that we want to study an alien civilization. Let's make this probe and we'll launch it at such a ridiculously slow speed that it'll get there in, depending on how far the star is, maybe it'll, it's a closer star. It'll get there in only, you know, 750,000 years, you know, <laughs> I mean, the point is you can't, you know, it, it, it's just, it's an absurd proposition. Well, Dr. Loeb said something I found interesting when I was talking to him about this. He said, well, possibly it's a monument to them, themselves. They don't expect uh, any kind of response from it. They're not searching for life. They're just launching these things out as monuments to their existence. And and we've done sort of the same thing with, uh, was it the, the Viking or the Voyagers? I mean, well, they're yeah. going to be traveling for tens of thousands of years before they can come close to a, a, a star. So, you know, it's kind, maybe kind of the same thing. Well, not really, because the purpose of the Voyagers was not to just go out to the stars and, and hope for the best. The purpose was to study up close Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Uranus. And, uh, and, and it did this, and it went by those outer planets and got information from them and then went out into space. So, um, but if you, if you want, if you say, okay, well, we, wanna, we, we have a you know, big ego and we want all the other civilizations to think that we're terrific. So we're gonna send out these probes. They don't appear to be, was it aimed at us from anywhere that, that we can find 
what we just send out, we just make trillions and trillions of probes and send them out in every direction and wait 10 million years for them to reach someplace. I mean, that makes no sense. Well, your point about it, the, the, the Voyagers being sent by the planets is absolutely true, but it had an additional mission, which was to carry on because that's why they put some of this stuff on the uh, the spacecraft, like the, the golden record and the right. illustration of our solar system and things like right. that, which, which is now inaccurate, by the way. <laughs> And I wonder if the record is one of the kind you had to put, put it on a turntable with a groove and a needle. Um, I'm sure the aliens have lots of those on their planets. But no, but the point was, that was, that was if nothing, that was just like icing on the cake. That was just a publicity move just to Granted, all of get that. people interested. The real purpose of that was to study the outer planets. And it understood. was very successful. Understood, understood. And I'm just saying it, it, we really don't know if there's aliens out there, we really don't understand how they think and how they would react and what their mindsets might be. So something that would be, well, alien to us <laughs> might be quite common to them. Is, well, yeah. So, so you're, it, you think of how many they would have had to have launched uh, do because without knowing for sure where it's going to end up and it's going to travel you know, in a million years or 10 million years, I mean, these stars are not going to be in the same position where they are now. And uh, if, if, when you've got so many, it's not just a simple two-body problem of orbits. You're, these stars are going to be, you know, they're going to be affecting each other and the gravitation from the, the, um, the, the, around the center of the galaxy and everything. So I, you could just, just fill the galaxy with things, I guess, but I don't think so. What do you think of the proposition of them wanting to, to search for other similar objects passing through the solar system, whether they be natural or artificial, um, to learn a little bit more about the construction of the galaxy, which is kind of where they're going with the, the um, research they're proposing. Right. That's they're, they're part of what, yes. Galileo project. That's part of what they're doing. And that part, I think, is, uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And, and I, you know, I agree with it. The thing is, though, that now these things are traveling faster than the ordinary. You know, if a comet is coming in from, you know, further out in the Oort cloud or something in our in our solar system, um, these objects are going to be traveling faster because they have more than escape velocity from the sun. When they come come past the sun, they'll be going fast enough to escape from the sun's gravity completely because that's where they started out. So that being the case, you know, these say you're not going to have much time. Uh, you, what you'd have to do is if you had a, uh, an object, I, I mean, a, a, if you had a space mission that was ready to launch and um, it, you would basically have to have keep the thing almost, you know, ready on not quite a hair trigger, but, you know, you might be ready. You know, okay, we only got a week to get this thing out there because you would need to rendezvous with it at a certain point and uh, uh, it, it wouldn't be easy. So the point being you you would have this have to be a dedicated mission it have to be sitting off in some silo somewhere just ready to go in a few days or a week but all ready prepared ready to go so well, i think i think their their plan i agree it's worth doing their plan for the galileo project is to set up a number of telescopes around the world i think he said 3 meter telescopes uh, yeah. around the world that would be able to capture video and other readings from the object, not an attempt to intercept them, but just an attempt to study them from an Earth-based planet. Well, yes, but why? I mean, we already have such telescopes. We already have big, big old telescopes uh, in many countries. Um, I don't see why what they're proposing is different, any different than what we have. If we knew that another 
Oumuamua type object was coming in, uh, all the big telescopes would be pointing at it and trying to, um, you know, trying to learn about it. I don't see what the Galileo project brings to uh, the party here. They seem to think that they're going to set up networks of cameras and telescopes and they're going to get all this good data on the UAPs or whatever they want to call them. And, you know, and, and these, these objects coming into the solar system. But, you know, we've already got so many uh, telescopes here. Plus, they said, oh, they're going to, they want a, a uh, they want to set up a network to detect objects that are as uh, alien, possible alien probes that are as small as one meter that would be orbiting the Earth. Well, the point is, though, that this existing space uh, network, uh, will detect objects as small as uh, baseball size. So they're saying, well, if there's something 10 times larger than what we can detect now that they miss, we'll find them. And that doesn't make much sense either. This so is you on the floor. This argument is, you know, I have a, I have a you know, Oamuamua um, entry there. Well, I, so you're thinking, well, the, the one thing we need to point out, I think, is that the funding is not going to come from tax dollars. So right there, I'm on board. Right, that's fine. They're getting private funding. So yay for them on that point. Uh, but you don't think it's going to result in much in the way of increasing our knowledge or? I don't, you know, I've read their proposals that, you know, they, they think they're, they're going to use these big telescopes to see something. They also think that, you know, they're going to set up their own network of cameras and so on. You know how many different, camera networks have been set up there have been a few to try to look for ufos not any of them have really gotten very far but they they've uh, tried to at least launch it we've already got uh, all these uh, meteor cameras there are tremendous numbers of meteor cameras uh, in uh, operation around the world many private observatories have all sky cameras and so on none of these people seem to be picking up ufos but Apparently, uh, Dr. Loeb thinks that his cameras are going to be, you know, more, uh, more, more to the alien liking or something. That uh, I mean, everybody's got cameras these days in astronomy, and uh, I don't, I don't, just don't see what he thinks he's going to add that isn't already there. Have you talked to him at all? No, I haven't. Uh, it's fun to talk to, if, if nothing else. Well, yeah. Uh, well, we're out of time here. You know, getting get to the end. Um, your blog, of course, is www.badufos.com. Uh, I think you've got some. The latest entries are dealing with the Travis Walton case, and uh, yeah, I've got about about four or five uh, recent entries on the Travis Walton, and also one on the Galileo project, and one on the uh, claims of Oumuamua being a uh, you know an extraterrestrial artifact. So uh, if you're interested in uh, more on the Walton case, you can take a look at uh, Robert's um, blog at uh, www.badufos.com. And you can take a look at mine as well at www.kevinremmel.blogspot.com. There's some more stuff about uh, Dr. Loeb. You can listen to his explanation for exactly what they want to do with it. You can hear me uh, giving them a hard time about maybe looking at some of the past UFO cases that might provide them with some hints on what to look for and how to do some of the research and his wanting to stay away from UFOs. <laughs> 
not one thing. Oh, yeah, I don't see again. You know, it's a recycled old UFO cases. What is, what would he be able to do that other people haven't done? So I was just thinking it might provide some clues into insight to the object. I was thinking of, of, of Charles Moore and the array sightings from 1949 in New Mexico and some things like that might provide them with a little bit of a hint of where to go to look at these sorts of things. Robert, I want to thank you for taking time to visit with me today. We've had a it's been a been a quick one. Yeah. And, well, and we time managed flies to make it when work. you're having fun, right? Yeah. And we managed to make it work. Thank you so much. Once again, the book is Bad UFOs and the website is www.badufos.com. Uh, next week, I'm going to be talking to Robert Mercer about his discoveries in the Project Blue Book files that he found, which is kind of interesting. And coming up in the following week, I'm going to be talking to Jennifer Stein from MUFON about uh, Travis Walton again and that sort of thing. I'm going to be talking to Robert Young about the Kecksburg UFO case. Now, Robert Young believes it was a bolide, and I'm kind of leaning in that direction based on the some of the evidence that has come out and, and where those things have gone. So I think that's something that will be of interest. Uh, so you'll be taking a look at that. We will be covering more in interesting topics in the uh, future. You have been listening to a different perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. I thank you for tuning in, and uh, we'll be back in about 167 hours. <laughs>